Okay. Well, I just want to open this morning with a question. Um, how do you spot a Christian? Um, it's a very interesting question to ask. How do you spot a Christian? If there's a crowd of people around you, is there any way of identifying the Christians in that crowd? When you meet someone for the first time, how quickly can you find out whether he or she is a Christian? Um, it can be a difficult question to answer sometimes. You may see dotted around the room, actually, there's sort of a group of three over there and one over here, wearing green t-shirts. Because yesterday, one way of spotting a Christian in the centre of Oxford was actually, there were a lot of young people, teenagers, doing a day called Vertigo, a day of social action projects around Oxford. And they were all wearing these lovely, tasteful green t-shirts. And that's one way of spotting a Christian. But I was involved in the planning stages of that day, and we actually had a lot of angst, really, about whether or not to wear t-shirts like that. And there are many pros and cons about it. Um, the pros were you would know who was with you, um, sort of crowd control. You basically would know who was with you. You could make sure you bring them with you where you needed to go. Also, it was a benefit that local communities you were going to would see this large group of teenagers dressed the same and ask questions, going, what are they doing here? Why are they in our community picking up litter, painting walls, cleaning up gardens, etc.? It would actually maybe start conversations about why the day was happening. The cons of that were maybe quite similar, actually. We were scared that actually local communities would feel intimidated by large groups of green t-shirted teenagers <laughs> arriving in their areas. We didn't want to intimidate people. Also, it, may, it might have looked a bit like a cult, some very strict dress code that Christians must all wear green t-shirts. So in the end, we really left it. Some teams wore the t-shirts, some teams didn't. But again, it's a difficult thing how to spot a Christian. Again, Christianity is not a religion that does demand a very strict dress code from its followers. Again, unlike maybe things like the Sikh religion or Orthodox Judaism or Islam. And that can make it quite difficult sometimes to identify Christians. How you spot a Christian is an important question, though. Because the Bible is clear that Christians should be seen in the world. And Christians should be distinctive in the world. Jesus called his followers to be salt and light in this world, and he warned them they would be persecuted because of him. He warned them of that because he presumed that people would know these Christians were followers of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul echoes Jesus in Romans chapter 12, when he calls Christians not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, as we think about what Christ has done for us. And meanwhile, the Apostle Peter opens his first letter to Christians scattered across Asia by addressing them as God's elect strangers in the world. And it's that phrase, strangers in the world, that always hits me when I look at that. It tells us that if we're Christians here this morning, then this world is not our home. It can't be our home because it fails to acknowledge and worship the God who made us and who calls us to know and love him. And that phrase, strangers in the world, warns us that we won't feel at home here and now. That we will suffer a form of homesickness at times as we long for a world where God is honoured, where sin is no longer a problem, where Christ is worshipped. But what does it mean to live as strangers in the world? What does that look like in practice? See, some Christian groups over the years have argued for complete separation from the world, to to really emphasise that. 
that we are strangers in the world. For example, the Amish community in Pennsylvania, in the United States, who completely reject the modern world. Very distinctive in Pennsylvania when you see an Amish man or woman dressed very differently to a modern man or woman. With their particular orders of monks or nuns who seek to live in solitude from this world. They feel to really know God, to honour God, they've got to get out of the world and get on their own. And in a way, at times, I think, I think some of us might find the idea of separating ourselves from the world quite attractive at times. Maybe not all the time, but I know for myself, there are times when I really do struggle with my sinful heart. I want to be worshipping God more fully, and I imagine that it would somehow be a lot easier if I was living in an abbey somewhere, if I didn't have a TV or magazines or movies to watch. And even as a teenager, I used to dream of setting up home in the west coast of Ireland, and living in a little cottage there on my own, just a dog and a woolly jumper for company. So maybe that's just me. But there are times when separating ourselves from the world completely can sound very appealing to us. But I want us to see this morning that that's not what Esther and Mordecai did in the book of Esther. And they have a lot to teach us about how God can work through his people for the good of his world even when if people have to cope with life in a messy and dangerous world like this one. See, last week, if you were here, we saw in Esther chapter 1 that the world in which Esther and her cousin Mordecai are living was a world that ignored God completely. It is a world where God is completely invisible. And in keeping with that, the book of Esther doesn't mention God's name once in the whole book. And it was a powerful and impressive world at first glance. But by the end of chapter 1, we saw its vanity and futility as well. For all his wealth and power, King Xerxes of Persia could not control his wife or buy her respect. And in chapter 2 this morning, we finally meet Esther and Mordecai, two Jews living in Persia. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 tell us why they're in Persia. Again, we saw that last week. They've been exiled along with the rest of God's people. But it must be said that at the time of King Xerxes' reign in Persia, a small group of Jews had been allowed to return home. So by the time Esther was alive, there were Jews back in Judah, and they'd actually rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem under the encouragement of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. You can look at that in those prophecies, Haggai and Zechariah. So why are Esther and Mordecai still living in the city of Susa? Why didn't they take the opportunity to return to the land they'd been exiled from? Well, basically, we're not actually given an answer to that question. What we can say is that Esther and Mordecai aren't alone. The vast majority of Jews did decide to stay in Persia rather than returning to Judah. And one reason seemed to be that life was very good for the Jews in Persia. Many of them had built new lives for themselves, and those lives were good. The Jews who returned to Judah, on the other hand, were facing a tough time of it, dealing with apathy and persecution as they tried to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of the city. And you can read about that in the book of Nehemiah. It takes place after the events of Esther. Now, ask the question, why have Esther and Mordecai not gone home? Not to condemn Esther and Mordecai for remaining in Persia. Though there have been commentators, both Jewish and Christian, who've done that over the years. I just want us to see that Esther and Mordecai, when we first meet them in chapter 2, are very similar to the people living around them. 
they don't actually seem very different at all. See, Mordecai seems to have had some sort of official position in the Persian court. Chapter 2, verse 21, describes him sitting in the king's gate. And several times throughout the book, he's described in that way. And that suggests that the king's gate was where Mordecai worked for the king. He was some sort of civil servant in the city of Susa. And his cousin Esther, when we finally meet her in chapter 2, verse 7, is one of many beautiful young women who will play a vital part in what follows. But at first glance, there isn't much to tell her apart from them. Esther does have a Jewish name, Hadassah, but throughout the book she's known more by her Persian name, Esther. And as for Mordecai, we never hear if he did have a Jewish name. All we hear about is his Persian name, Mordecai. So when we first meet them, Esther and Mordecai seem very much at home in Persia. There's very little to tell them apart from their neighbours. So if we take Esther and Mordecai as examples for a Christian on how to live as strangers in the world, we might presume at first that they are a bad example. If you compare them with, with, with Daniel, in the book of Daniel, Daniel was another man who lived in exile, but he made a stand for God very explicitly from the very beginning of his time in exile. But unlike Daniel, Esther and Mordecai don't seem interested in making a stand for their God or their nation here. They seem just too busy getting on with their lives in Susa to make big gestures like Daniel did. Esther and Mordecai just don't seem interested in that sort of thing. I want us to see this morning that if that is an accurate picture of Esther and Mordecai when we first meet them, then it's a picture that a lot of Christians living in the West today should be able to relate to. See, many Christians in the West are outwardly at least pretty much indistinguishable from our neighbours. We work at the same jobs. We drive the same cars. We often worry about the same things. We worry about money, about family, about mortgages, about pensions. You see, if we feel like criticising Esther and Mordecai for not being distinctively different in their world, then I think we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and the way we live our lives. How am I different from my non-Christian neighbours? Can people at work see that I am a follower of Jesus? Or do they see nothing different about me? Apart from going to church on a Sunday, is there any way that I am distinctive from the people around me in the way I think about my money, my family, my job? So I think these are difficult questions for us to ask ourselves. And they're definitely difficult questions for me to ask of myself. How distinctive am I? Do people know that I'm a Christian? Now, I'm not trying to make every Christian here this morning feel terrible about themselves. You'd be glad to know. Um, I just want to show us just how difficult it can be to live distinctively for God in a world that ignores God. And Esther and Mordecai are vivid examples of that. But once we've accepted it's a struggle to live distinctively Christian lives in this world, I want to see that the book of Esther is a powerful picture to us of how the living God can still use us in this world for his good purposes. See, I say that because God doesn't leave Esther and Mordecai where they are at the beginning of this book. Almost as soon as we meet them, it's possible to see the hand of the living and invisible God at work in their lives. 
working through them to achieve his purposes, whether they're completely aware of it or not. We might not see God visibly and dramatically working here at first, but God is working nonetheless, and he is doing amazing things through Esther and Mordecai. So first of all, let's look at Esther then, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, that, that Jackie read for us. Again, you'll remember from last week, if you were here, that the Persian emperor Xerxes is without a queen at the beginning of chapter 2. He's banned his wife Vashti from ever walking into his presence again. So chapter 2 begins with Xerxes' advisors at work again, suggesting to him that in verse 3, Xerxes appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all the beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Again, it's a nice little touch there again. Xerxes' vanity, all beautiful young women coming just for him, it does appeal to him, that advice. But again, we do see here that Xerxes is an all-powerful emperor, but again, he's easily persuaded to go along with what his advisors say. And that becomes a bit more ominous in chapter 3. So, the commissioners go out into the land and gather up all the beautiful young women. And the beautiful Esther is one of them. And the writer is very matter-of-fact about this, to the point where it's easy to sort of trivialise this process, isn't it? Sort of see it as a sort of 5th century BC pop idol. Sort of going out, getting everyone in. Who will be queen? Only one person can have that role. But when you look a little bit closer, we'll see that Esther is being sucked into a very grim and depressing world. See, taking young women off the streets and placing them into the king's palace was a lot less glamorous than it looked. In fact, when you think about it, it must have been terrifying for a lot of these women. They're referred to as girls here, possibly mainly teenagers. And they had no choice in the matter. They had to go along with what the king commanded or else they would be put to death. See, it's important for us to see that. So the only reason the writer of Esther is so understated about it is that this sort of thing went on all the time in Persia. The Greek historian Herodotus describes how every year the Persian court gathered 500 young boys into the palace and castrated them to serve as the king's eunuchs. So again, the writer is not shocked by this, but it doesn't mean that it's no less terrifying a process for the women involved. And it was to these harems that Esther and all the other young women were taken. And there, verses 12 to 14 tell us, they received a year's worth of beauty treatment to prepare them for one night with the king. A whole year of their lives to prepare them for one night with Xerxes. After that one night with Xerxes, the woman would return to another part of the harem where all she could do was wait for the king to call her again. For the vast majority of these women, that call never came. As one commentator put it, their life in the harem had more in common with widowhood than marriage. They were abandoned and forgotten by the king, while at the same time they were forbidden to leave the palace and forbidden to marry anyone else. See, again, we've got to see here that the world of the Persian court was a cruel and vain world, which centred around the wishes of the powerful. They didn't care about the weak and the vulnerable. In this case, these young girls. 
And again, we've got to see there's a lot in common with our world today when powerful people can do whatever they want without thinking of the weak and the vulnerable. And that was the world that Esther was forced to live in here. These were events completely beyond her control. She was snatched off the streets. This wasn't her choice. But here she was in the harem waiting for her night with the king. See, Esther's sense of lacking any control over her life can find parallels, I think, in the lives of many Christians today as well. See, there are times in all our lives when we just do not feel in control of where we are going or what we are doing. We can feel trapped where we are in life. Perhaps trapped in a job we just don't enjoy anymore. Or we feel powerless to change our situation in life whether in the area of relationships or maybe trying to provide better lives for ourselves or for our families. Perhaps we feel our state of health is beyond our control. And often it is. Often we inherit physical or emotional or psychological complaints from our families that we can do nothing to change but which affect our lives enormously. And perhaps it's things in our past that we just can't change. People we have hurt, people who have hurt us or abused our trust. Perhaps we've done things that we are deeply ashamed of and we just are not in control of getting rid of them. We can't get rid of them and that gets to us. That hurts us in our lives. And one way that this feeling of powerlessness can express itself in a Christian's life, is that we can begin to wonder what God could have done in our lives had things been different. How much more could God have used me if I'd worked harder at school or at university? If I didn't feel so weak or anxious all the time? If I'd only chosen differently at that particular moment, if I'd gone right instead of left, then what could God have done with my life? those sort of thoughts can really depress us sometimes. They could lead us to despair. And it's easy to imagine Esther experiencing them. If only I hadn't gone outside that morning, Esther might think, then I wouldn't have been taken. If only I'd gone down that street instead of the other street where the king's commissioners were, then I would still be at home. If only I wasn't trapped in the king's palace with no way out. Am I now somehow outside of God's will for my life? Living in a pagan palace rather than having a family, children, a future of my own. See, those are feelings you can relate to. But I want to encourage us this morning. The book of Esther and Esther's life is a great reminder to us of God's grace to us in a messy and difficult world. See, some Christians can live in fear and anxiety that somehow they have missed out on God's great plan for their lives. If only things were different, then God could use them. But as it is, they're a, they're a hopeless case. They're a lost cause. See, if that's how you feel sometimes, let me encourage you that God's word tells us something very different. That God is big enough to deal with the messiness of our lives. And God has purposes for you that perhaps at this point you are completely unaware of. 
See, I think it is a terrible thing for many Christians when finding God's will for your life becomes a great tyrant for us. We live in constant fear that we somehow missed it. We all make terrible decisions in the past. We all mess up. We all sin. We are sinners. But our God, we need to remember, is a gracious God. He is still able to use us in spite of all our sin and failure and mixed motives. And in fact, he chooses to use sinners like us to fulfill his purposes because then he gets even more glory. We know it's not from us. We're going, this has to be God in me. I am not capable of serving God in this way without his Spirit's help. See, without God's grace, Esther would have been lost in Xerxes' palace. And without God's grace, we all would be lost in a godless world without hope and without a future. But with God's grace, God can do great things through us. And he's preparing to do great things through Esther in this chapter. See, as we look throughout chapter 2, we can see that God, quietly, invisibly, behind the scenes, is working to achieve his purposes through Esther. See, straight away she wins the favour of Haggai, the chief eunuch, in verse 9. And he gives her preferential treatment. He gives her seven maids from the king's palace and the best place in the harem. Following Mordecai's advice, Esther doesn't reveal that she is a Jew. Verse 10. And that's a controversial decision. Um, Many people reading Esther get a bit annoyed at Mordecai and Esther here. They think this is wrong of them to hide who they really are. In their defence, you could say the palace of Xerxes was a very dangerous place. And perhaps Mordecai was worried that Esther would really suffer harm if she told people she was a Jew. There is a hint. There was a lot of anti-Semitism in Persia from chapter 3 of Esther. And certainly today there are countries, particularly in the Muslim world, where Christians do choose to hide their faith. And it is difficult for Christians in the West to criticise them for that. They are in a terrible situation. We need to pray for them in that situation, pray for God's protection for them. See, all we can say for sure about Esther's decision to hide her Jewishness is the writer doesn't pass judgment on her here. And the fact that Esther has hidden the fact she's a Jew becomes very important later on in this book. And then in verses 15 to 18, when her time with the king arrives, Esther follows Haggai the eunuch's advice to the letter on how to please him. She wins the favour of everyone who sees her and ultimately she wins the favour of King Xerxes and she is appointed as his queen. See, this is God at work here. There are too many coincidences here for God not to be at work. And God is being faithful and gracious to Esther here. See, the situation Esther's in is not an ideal one. She is being married to a pagan king. In a hostile world, a king also who has been known to spurn his wives if they disobey him or disrespect him. Esther, let's not be any doubt about it, is in a dangerous position here as queen to Xerxes. And she's also in a position where she will struggle to maintain her identity as one of God's people. Next week, Peter's going to take us through chapter 4, and we're going to see that Esther, there are hints there, she's struggling to remain faithful to God there. There are hints that she might be forgetting her allegiance to God while living in the palace of Xerxes. 
But I want us to see here that throughout this book, God is gracious to Esther. Esther's motives might not always be the purest. She might not always be purely devoted to God. But then again, we just need to look at our own hearts to see that we are all sinful. We all have mixed motives in our lives. And therefore, it is a great encouragement that God is able to take a woman like Esther, who is in a difficult position, who is feeling pressured to reject her heritage, and he is still able to use her for his purposes. See, that is a great encouragement to us. Our God is a gracious God. He knows that we are sinners. He knows that we are weak. And yet, he uses us. And yet, he calls us to be used by him. See, again, if we need to be reminded, and amazingly, sometimes we do need to be reminded, the Christian life is a life that can only be lived by God's grace. Sometimes we can look at Bible characters and presume these are saints, these are perfect people. But they're not. And the Bible is very clear that they're not. They are not perfect, but God is gracious. We are not perfect, but God can graciously use us the way he used Esther. Our God is big enough to overcome our sin. And we need to remember that as we seek to serve him imperfectly and often in a stumbling way. But just in case we think we're totally off the hook and that we can live whatever way we like and God will always bless us, we have the story of Mordecai in verses 19 to 23. I'll just read this out for us briefly. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. See, we've seen this morning that Esther had no control over the situation she was placed in. She was seized from the street and yet God was able to use her in spite of that. But her cousin Mordecai, who has cared for Esther ever since her parents died and who continues to look out for her, does have a choice in the situation he is in. He is still outside the palace, doing his job while trying to keep an eye on Esther. And Mordecai chooses to be a faithful exile and to honour and worship God in the work that he does. So the passage I've just read has Mordecai stumbling upon a plot to kill Xerxes. And Mordecai had a number of alternatives in front of him when he heard about that plot. He could have ignored it. He could have thought it was nothing to do with him what happened to King Xerxes. After all, Xerxes was a pagan. What was it to Mordecai if he was murdered by his own officers? He could have seen it as God's judgment on Xerxes for not trusting in him and simply let it happen. Who was Mordecai to get in the way of God's plans to wipe out Xerxes? But what Mordecai did do was to warn the king through Esther 
And so Mordecai saved the king's life. See, Xerxes, we already seen, is a pagan king, a godless king, in some ways an enemy of God's people, and yet Mordecai chooses to save his life. And in doing this, Mordecai was being a faithful exile, in keeping with the words of the Lord spoken to the prophet Jeremiah, back in Jeremiah 29. I'll just put those up on the screen. In that chapter, the Lord was telling his people how they should live when they were in exile. And he tells them, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see, in choosing to protect the king, Mordecai was obeying the Lord. He was seeking the peace and prosperity of the city, even though it was a city that didn't acknowledge God. And that is the situation all Christians are in today. So we have to ask ourselves the questions, do we just abandon this world to its sin and despair and godlessness? Or do we seek to make a difference in it? Do we pray for our city, for our leaders, for our communities in which we live? Do we seek to do good in the name of Jesus? See, that was what so excited me about Vertigo yesterday. Again, back to the green t-shirts for a second. But, I mean, I was under no illusions that a group of teenagers cleaning toilets and picking up litter and painting walls was going to bring the whole city of Oxford to trust in Jesus. But it was a day when Christian teenagers and their friends sought to do good in their city, to help bring about peace and prosperity in the lives of communities and individuals that often have very little hope. It was a day when Christians sought to love their neighbours, to love even their enemies, because that's what Jesus tells us to do. That's what Jeremiah 29 tells us to do. And that's what Mordecai did. He chose to save the king's life and in so doing, he demonstrated his obedience to God. And we need to see that, that just as there will be times when we are powerless to change our situation, when we will be in a difficult situation where we just have to trust in God as we continue in it, so there will be times when we clearly have a choice to make, as Mordecai did here. A choice to honour and worship God or a choice to disobey him. A choice to do the right thing or to do the wrong thing. And Mordecai shows us that it is possible to make godly and loving decisions even in a messy and dangerous world like Persia. And again, that is an encouragement to us. This world is not beyond God's grace and God calls us to do good here just as Mordecai did. So we've met Esther, we've met Mordecai. We're going to sprint through. We're not going to read chapter 3, you'll be glad to know. We're sprinting through because we need to be introduced to the third major character in this story, and that is a man called Haman. And he is the enemy of God's people. So he wants to see here that the messy and dangerous world of the Persian court gets a whole lot more messy and a whole lot more dangerous when Haman enters the picture. See, in 3 verse 1, he's described as an Agagite. That suggests he's, he's from a group of people called the Amalekites, and all these great Old Testament names. A group of people who opposed the people of God, who attacked them at every opportunity in the Old Testament. And it's interesting to note here that at the end of chapter 2, it's Mordecai who saves the king's life. 
But at the beginning of chapter 3, it's Haman who's honoured by the king. It's just another reminder to us, don't expect instant rewards for doing the right thing in this world. Mordecai didn't get one. You probably won't either. But once Haman is promoted, the king orders all his officials to bow down and pay honour to him. But Mordecai refuses to. We aren't told exactly why, but it seems clear that really, even though he is seeking to be a faithful exile in the city, he refuses to worship the city in which he lives. He reserves his worship for the God of Israel. Whatever the reason, Haman hears of Mordecai's refusal, and he is furious, verse 5. In his rage, he decides it isn't enough just to kill Mordecai, which he could have done. Haman had the power to do that. Instead, Haman decides to wipe out all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. Verse 7 tells us, Haman casts lots to decide when this extermination will take place. And then he presents his request to wipe out the Jews very cleverly to King Xerxes. Haman never actually mentions the Jews by name, and he promises a great financial reward for the king from the plunder they'll receive from the families they've killed. As always, Xerxes is easily influenced by his advisors, and he agrees to Haman's request. And the decree is sent out, verse 13, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. It goes right across the empire. God's people are sentenced to death in Esther chapter 3. Well, at the end of that chapter, in verse 15, the king and Haman sit down to drink. They're callously unthinking about the people they have just sentenced to death. Now, all we have time to see from chapter 3 is that God's people will always have enemies. Even when Christians seek to do good and to pray for our world, there will always be elements of the world violently opposed to Christians. Again, evangelicals now, if you want to pick it up this week, you will see countless stories in there of persecution right throughout the world, of Christians dying because of their allegiance to Jesus. While in this country, more likely to be ignored or ridiculed or looked down on. So we mustn't expect that by seeking to make a difference in the world, that the world will welcome us and thank us. Because it won't. Christians will always have enemies. And that's because Christians always have a greater enemy standing behind them. The Bible is very clear that the devil is real. And like Haman, he is vindictive, he is subtle, and he's absolutely committed to hurting God's people. And the only hope we have is the only hope the Jews have at the end of chapter 3. Is our God able to rescue us from our enemy? And again, we can thank God this morning that the answer for a Christian is yes. That the devil has been defeated. The death blow has been struck to the devil at the cross. And the devil might still be able to hurt us. He is still active. But if we are trusting in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of him. Our future is secure. There's nothing he can do to stop that. See, our God is a saving God. He is a powerful God and he is a gracious God. And he calls on us to trust in him even when we face opposition, as the Jews will face from chapter 3 onwards. So, as we finish, 
let's be encouraged from Esther 2 and 3 that God is working in his world through his people. Just as he was able to work through the lives of Esther and Mordecai. We can't always see God's hand at work in our world, even in our lives at times. But we are encouraged by God's word that he is working. He's able to take us in all our sinfulness and our weakness and our mixed motives. And he's able to fulfill his purposes through us. Not because we are great, but because he is great. Again, the God of Esther and Mordecai is a gracious God. The God we worship today is a God of grace. And we can trust in his grace to keep us close to him, no matter what happens in this world, no matter how weak we feel. So let's just pray to that wonderful God we serve now. Let's pray.